everyone. Welcome to Chris's Courses. This is my podcast where I share my classes at Westlink Church of Christ. I'm Chris Perry, the Family Life Minister here. Now, normally I just record my audio when I'm teaching in class, and uh, I, I miss the beginning of my new series, and so I'm going to be doing this from my office. So you're actually getting me on a better quality microphone, uh, a little bit of better sound quality. You're not going to have the awkward pauses when I'm waiting for discussion. So let me know if you're following this, if you want me to just keep recording them this way, or if the class audio is fine. But either way, I'm glad you're with us. So I'm starting a new series on the book of Genesis, and I'm calling this study Questions in Genesis. And I think that's, that's what it's all about, right? That this is not a book that we go to to find all the answers to everything that we want to know about the universe, but we come to it to see what are the questions that Genesis itself is trying to get us to ask. Because if we come to it with the wrong questions, we're going to get the wrong answers. And so some of the big questions overall in this book are what kind of creator do we have? And then a related question to that is, who are we as the people of this God? What's our purpose? What's our calling? What are the nature of the promises that God has made? So people have divided the book of Genesis into two different calls. There's the calling of the world to be God's world, and then the calling of a special people to be God's own. So chapters 1 to 11 are about the call to the world, and then chapters 12 to 50 are about the call to the people of Israel. In the first section, the tension is between God's will for creation and then creation's response, which you know, generally doesn't respond too well. And then the later section focuses on the specific families, the families of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and seeing how they respond to their call, uh, often also not very well. And so what we see through all of this is God is going to be faithful to creation and to Israel, regardless of how either responds, which I think is good news to us too. So like I said, do we come to the book of Genesis with our own questions, or do we ask uh, our, its own questions? Right? We don't want to start with our modern perspective. It still matters, but right, if we start with these modern questions about our beginnings, we'll ask things like, well, how old is the earth? Is the earth round or is it flat? Uh, what about evolution? Or were the seven days of creation 24-hour periods? I think those are the wrong questions to come to it. However, we want to respond to any of those individual ones. I'm not going to do that right now. And we also don't even want to start with a Christian perspective, right? We don't want to start with questions of, like, is there the Trinity present in Genesis chapter 1? Is the snake Satan? Now, those are questions we will look at, but... We ask those questions after we try and understand the original meaning of Genesis, what it meant in its time to its original audience. Genesis is an ancient Near Eastern work, and so it's going to have an ancient Near Eastern perspective, right? For example, they probably would assume that the earth was flat or the sun revolves around the earth, right? Go read Psalm 19, and it, they seem to think that pretty clearly. What this shows us and what we're going to see as we go through this book is that the revelation of God is always mediated through a human perspective. God couldn't explain everything as it was fully, or even in the ways that maybe we understand it today, because that wouldn't make sense to them. And if God is loving, he's going to speak to to people in a way that they can understand. And so this book is not attempting to scientifically describe creation. It's theologically describing its creator. And so that should be our focus, too. 
our focus is theological. Who is God and who are we if we're following this God? So the first question to think about is, how does Genesis respond to its context? As I've kind of been saying, instead of contrasting Genesis with modern science and the questions that come there, we start by contrasting Genesis with other ancient creation accounts. And so what I want to do now is read you one of these accounts. This is something called the Enuma Elish. This was a work written in an ancient Babylonian dialect. Uh, we don't have the exact date. Uh, I, at least I don't know that for sure. There are other versions that are similar in other languages like Sumerian, and they change the name of the gods, but the story is basically the same. Uh, now, we didn't find, well, I say we, I, I had nothing to do with this, <laughs> but this, this creation myth wasn't discovered until the 19th century around the area of, of Nineveh. So I want you to hear this and imagine that this is the world into which Genesis is speaking. Right? This is what everybody else thought about the gods and the way that creation came about. And when we hear you know, what was in the air, we can see Genesis as a response to it. So in the Enuma Elish, uh, there's several different gods. Uh, it may be a little hard to keep them all straight, but the main character is a god named Marduk. He's the god of storms and spring. He's the son of the god Ea. And we're going to see in this story that he's fighting with Tiamat because she's vowed revenge on all the other gods. Uh, and it refers to Marduk as the Lord in this story. Uh, Tiamat is the goddess of the sea and chaos. Ea, who was mentioned, he's the god of the sky. He's the great-grandson of Tiamat. Uh, he kills Tiamat's first husband for plotting to destroy the other gods. Right, you don't have to keep all this straight, but just or you can already tell from these characters that there's a lot of infighting. And then uh, another god that's mentioned is Kingu, who is the second husband of Tiamat. Okay, like I said, there's not going to be a quiz on this, uh, but just see there's all these different gods that are going to be, they're already fighting, and that's what our story is. So here's uh, the beginning of uh, this section of Enuma Elish. Then Tiamat and Marduk joined battle, wisest of gods. They strove in single combat, locked in battle. The Lord spread out his net to enfold her, the evil wind, which followed behind, and he let loose in her face. When Tiamat opened her mouth to consume him, he drove in the evil wind before she shut her lips. As the terrible winds filled her belly, her body was distended and her mouth was wide open. He released the arrow. It tore her belly. It cut through her inside, splitting her heart. Having thus subdued her, he extinguished her life. He cast down her carcass to stand upon it. Valiant Marduk strengthened his hold on the vanquished gods and turned back to Tiamat, whom he had bound. The Lord trod on the legs of Tiamat. With his unsparing mace, he crushed her skull. When the arteries of her blood he had severed, the north wind bore it to places undisclosed. On seeing this, his fathers were joyful and jubilant. They brought gifts of homage to him. Then the Lord paused to view her dead body, that he might divide the form and do artful works. He split her like a shellfish into two parts. Half of her he set up as a covering for heaven, pulled down the bar and posted guards. He bade them not to allow her waters to escape. He constructed stations for the great gods, fixing their astral likeness as the stars of the zodiac. After he had appointed the days to Shamash, this is the sun god, he had established the precincts of night and day, Taking the spittle of Tiamat, Marduk created. He formed the clouds and filled them with water. The raising of winds, the bringing of rain and cold. Putting her head into position, he formed the mountains. Opening the deep, which was in, 
which was in flood, he caused the Euphrates and Tigris to flow from her eyes. He formed from her breasts the lofty mountains, in which he drilled springs for the wells to carry off the water. When Marduk heard the words of the gods, his heart prompted him to fashion artful works. Opening his mouth, he addressed Ea to impart the plan he had conceived in his heart. I will take blood and fashion bone. I will establish a savage man shall be his name. Truly savage man I will create. He shall be charged with the service of the gods, that they might be at ease. Who was it that contrived the uprising that made Tiamat rebel and join battle? Let him be handed over who contrived the uprising. Another god says, It was Kingu who contrived the uprising and made Tiamat rebel and join battle. So they bound him, holding him before Ea. They imposed his punishment on him and severed his blood vessels. Out of his blood, they fashioned humanity. He imposed the service on him and let the gods free. When Ea the wise completed humanity, he had imposed on them the service of the gods. That work was beyond comprehension. So, what were your reactions to hearing that story? Uh, not too pleasant. Right? There's a lot of violence. Uh, the way that creation happens is because of, of a battle between these gods, and, and the earth itself is just formed from the corpse of one of the gods. You know, they, they don't really seem like they're really that, that godly, at least the way that we as Christians would want to define that term. They just seem like powerful people with their own grudges and desires for revenge. Now, you may have heard, heard a little bit that sounded a little bit like Genesis, the idea of separating waters, uh, having a, a dome in the sky. We'll, we'll see that in just a minute. But for the most part, it sounds very different. And so if this is what non-Israelites commonly thought about creation, and this is what Israelites had even heard, how is the God depicted in Genesis radically different? I think we can see that the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 they're actually kind of progressive for their time. It's, it's a very different picture of God. You know, I think that's important for us, again, starting with their perspective instead of ours, because uh, the modern perspective sees, quote-unquote, Old Testament God as too violent. But as we see here, uh, God actually is a lot less violent than most gods in their time. One of the reasons that Genesis has so much violence in it is because it's responding to a violent culture. And so again, we, we come to it in that context, and that helps us see what it's actually doing. And so with that in mind, now I want us to hear the story of Genesis 1. And so this is the word that comes to say what God is actually like. I'm going to be reading from Robert Alter's translation. He's a scholar who's recently done a whole translation of the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. And I think hearing it in slightly different, more poetic language will, will help us hear it in a new way. So... Genesis 1. When God began to create heaven and earth, and the earth was welter and waste, and darkness over the deep, and God's breath hovering over the waters, God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And it was evening, and it was morning, first day. And God said, Let there be a vault in the midst of the waters. And let it divide water from water. God made the vault, and it divided the water beneath the vault from the water above the vault, and so it was. And God called the vault heavens, and it was evening, and it was morning, second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered in one place, so that the dry land will appear. And so it was. And God called the dry land earth, 
and the gathering of waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth grow grass, plants yielding seed of each kind, and trees bearing fruit of each kind, that has its seed within it upon the earth. And so it was. And the earth put forth grass, plants yielding seed, and trees bearing fruit of each kind, and God saw that it was good. And it was evening, and it was morning, third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and they shall be signs for the fixed times and for days and years, and they shall be lights in the vault of the heavens to light up the earth. And so it was. And God made the two great lights, the great light for dominion of day and the small light for dominion of night and the stars. And God placed them in the vault of the heavens to light up the earth and to have dominion over day and night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And it was evening, and it was morning, fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with the swarm of living creatures, and let fowl fly over the earth, across the vault of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters, and every living creature that crawls, which the water had swarmed forth of each kind, and the winged fowl of each kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the water and the seas, and let the fowl multiply in the earth. And it was evening, and it was morning fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of each kind, cattle and crawling things and wild beasts of each kind. And so it was. And God made wild beasts of each kind and cattle of every kind and all crawling things on the ground of each kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make a human in our image, by our likeness, to hold sway over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the heavens and the cattle and the wild beasts and all the crawling things that crawl upon the earth. And God created the human in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and conquer it and hold sway over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the heavens and every beast that crawls upon the earth. And God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the face of all the earth and every tree that has fruit-bearing seed. Yours they will be for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, to all the fowl of the heavens, and to all that crawls on the earth, which has the breath of life within it, the green plants are for food. And so it was. God saw all that he had done, and look, it was very good. And it was evening, and it was morning, the sixth day. Then the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their array. And God completed on the seventh day the task he had done. And he ceased on the seventh day from all the tasks he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, for on it he had ceased from all his tasks that he had created to do. This is the tale of the heavens and the earth when they were created. I know we've probably heard that story before, but I hope you hear the poetry in it, the beauty in it, especially when we see the kind of ugly context that this world is, is speaking to. Now, if we were doing this in class, and you know, I had my trusty whiteboard with me, what I do as, as we were reading that is drawing what's going on. So, you know, if you can picture this in your mind, if you weren't already doing this, you imagine, you hear that in the beginning, the earth, so to speak, it, creation is just this chaotic water, right? This mess of, of blue. And then God creates light, but it's, it's just kind of this mess of, you know, light in the middle of all the chaotic waters. And then God separates it, right, creating this dome or firmament, as, as some translations would have it. The idea of there being waters above and waters below. 
And then God creates the land and the seas and the plants, the sun, moon, and stars, right? So that's kind of taking that, that light that existed and collecting it into you know, the great lights, as it calls it, the sun and moon and stars. Then there's fish and birds, then land animals, and then humanity. And then finally, God is resting over the top of this, you know, as if you can imagine him seated on a throne over this. So, you know, if, again, if you're picturing that, if you could see that illustrated, that's not really what we know the earth to look like. And so, again, this is where we don't want to come to this book with our modern scientific questions. Should God speak to ancient people in modern ways or in ancient ways? Well, of course, God is going to speak to ancient people in ancient ways, in ways they could understand. And so this is a reminder to us that we need to read the Bible for what it is, not what we expect it to be or not what we say it has to be. Right? I mean, we know there's not a bowl up in the sky and the stars are not set in it. The sky is not blue because it's suspended water, but you could understand why ancient people would, would understand it that way. And God is okay with letting them understand it that way. And again, it's impossible for light to exist without a light source. And we also know that the moon is not a source of light. It's actually reflecting the sun. But again, this shouldn't bother us. The only reason this might bother us is if we were coming to it with the wrong sort of questions. We can understand why they would see it this way, and that's why we have Genesis as it is. And generally speaking, the progression of the days here matches uh, the progression as, as science understands it of how things go. But again, the purpose of Genesis is not to be a science book. It's theological. It's to tell us what God is like. And so if you're going to describe God as God appears in this story with one word, what would, what would it be? Be orderly, powerful, unrivaled, right? There's no other gods that God is fighting against. Uh, good, right? You see how you hear how often God is focused on the goodness of creation, which I think should tell us that this is a good God. And it is, God is powerful, right? He doesn't have to fight anyone else with a word. God says it, and it was. And in the sense of order, right? Bringing order out of chaos. I think that's a, a big theme here in Genesis 1. Uh, if, if you could kind of divide it up, right? Day 1, you see there's light created. And then day 4, three days later, that light is divided into sun, moon, and stars. And then day 2, there's the sea and sky created. And then fish and birds on day 5. Day three, land and plants are created. And then day six, animals and humans, right? So God, in the first three days, is creating a space. And then the second three days is filling that space. Uh, so it's, again, very, very orderly. Um, and we don't really get an answer to why God creates. We can, we'll talk about that a little bit more with Genesis 2. It, it doesn't give a clear answer there either. It's... This just this idea that, that God just does, right? God is powerful, and this is what God chooses to do. Uh, there's a sense of divine freedom. God isn't forced to create, but, but God does. And as, again, we'll look at this deeper, I think a guiding question is, well, if God is love, well, what would love do? And so we see creation even here as an act of love. Bringing order out of chaos is a good thing, and, and we can do that as well. Now, the final thing we're going to talk about, finish up uh, with this episode, is this question at the end of, well, why does God rest? Why is that an important part of this story? It's not really creating, uh, but it's something that seems to be important. 
I think we should realize that it's not that God is tired. Although if anybody ever had an excuse to feel tired, it would probably be creating all the heavens and the earth. I think it's more the idea of God being at peace with creation. It's not that God spent the seventh day going back to edit. You know, I don't know about you, but whenever I finish a project, it's hard not to feel like, oh, well, I could have done that better. or I don't like this little thing. Maybe I should go back and fix something. No, God doesn't do that. God has finished the work, and God has declared that all of it is very good. And so God resting here is God sitting down to enjoy it. You know, I think of like when, when I mow the grass, and then I can sit on the porch and just enjoy that the work is done and appreciate that I brought a little bit of order to the chaos of, of my yard. And so that's what God is doing here. God is appreciating all of this goodness. And this is later going to be the basis for the day of Sabbath, the day of worship. It's not called that here, but uh, other places in, in Scripture will uh, call back to the seventh day as uh, a day of not working. Right? God doesn't have to work all the time, and so maybe we should slow down a little bit too. A final way that we can look at creation here is as a temple. Now, we don't really think in terms of temples in our time, and our day, but this was very central to the way the ancient people thought about, uh, about their gods and how they functioned. Now, in, in pagan religion, the temples would always have an image of their god, right? Usually this would be a statue. We would call it an idol. And, you know, Hebrew religion is famous for not doing that. And so as we look at creation here as the temple of God, well, what is God's image? And the answer is humanity. And so that's what we'll, we'll pick up next time, looking at this idea of humanity as the image of God, uh, displaying God to the rest of creation. The, the, all of creation is a temple of God. God is present. But one of the ways that happens is through us. So thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next time as we talk a little bit more about Genesis 1 and move into Genesis 2.